something that's coming soon. Something interesting that I've done since the last time that we've met, all through here I have read as many commentaries as I can get my hands on on Revelation. From the standpoint of browsing through, checking the key passages, reading the introduction, getting the dating, and everything like that. And one thing I can see is that the closer we get to the time we're at now, more and more are putting more information in there concerning the dating. And I really believe that we're not more than five or ten years at the most, maybe not ten, maybe five, before when you reach and you uh, pick up copies dealing with Revelation, that you're going to read some on the dating as far as putting it before 70 AD. In fact, right now, there is a change coming over the uh, entire New Testament scholarship alongside. The interesting thing to me is the ones that are pointing out some things that are leading to the dating of the entire New Testament before 70 AD are really the scholars that we have called liberal in the past. In other words, the, uh, the very liberal scholars, as opposed to the conservative, are the ones that actually are bringing out a lot of the information that is going to lead to the dating of this book. In fact, the most liberal archaeologists, uh, men such as Albright, who had reputations being liberal in that area, have already uh, pinpointed, identified Revelation and all of John's letters as having been written before 70 AD. And for those of you that are not aware, not only Revelation, but all of John's writings, the Gospel, and also the three letters were put uh, after 80 AD, with Revelation being the last one in 96, traditionally, uh, down through the years. And this is changing. And it's interesting that when you read from conservative and liberal scholars that Whichever side you're on, there's a tendency to read, if you're a liberal, there's a tendency to only want to read the liberal scholars, if you're a conservative, you only read from the conservative. But I really believe you get your best perspective in reading from both, no matter which one you tend to agree with, mostly, because each will tend to notice various things. And so the liberal, uh, with the new information that has come out through archaeology and through the historical sources, has been very quick. Uh, to grab hold of that information and to apply revelation to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the uh, Jewish nation and things involved in that generation. Uh, the conservative has tended to be more bound uh, to the traditional theological interpretations to the extent that at least in my judgment he has refused to deal in a completely unbiased way with the new evidence on the dating itself. And I know one uh, commentary I just checked this week put out by a conservative and yet a very open, very respected uh, man by the name of Guthrie. He has an introduction out to all the books of the New Testament. And this was a commentary on the entire Bible. He takes a position in it that, uh, of Revelation, takes a traditional date of 96. But he at least presents a number of the arguments before 70 AD and then refuses to be dogmatic with his 96 position, which is a change from his previous thinking on that. He refuses anymore to be dogmatic on it and leaves the door open for future research in that. But an interesting thing to me in reading his commentary on Revelation with him having put it in 96. And this is true with everyone I've read, read now. Every commentary I've looked at who had dated it in 96 and either dealt with Revelation with the time of Domitian and the Roman Empire or looked at it as something that was coming down through the centuries, one way or one.
96. The downfall of Rome was not imminent in 96. Rome fell in 476, and the persecution of Christians did not cease with Domitian in 96. Diocletian in 303 had a very severe persecution of Christians, and he's the one, in fact, that ordered the burning and the destroying of Christian and Judeo text. And then Rome, Rome gradually decays in the 5th century. And an interesting thing is, before it even decays or falls, that it's eaten up by Christianity. So that by the time we hit the 4th century, Christianity is literally the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so there's nothing in those statements that will fit that. Also, those that have applied it to 96 have traditionally said uh, a key reason was the emperor worship that you read about in Revelation. Uh, those who bowed and worshipped the beast. And there's no question that emperor worship took place under Domitian in 96. But the point is it didn't start there. Emperor worship also took place with Nero, in fact, going back to the very first of the emperors. Uh, emperor worship has always uh, been a practice. In fact, the worship or placing of kings or emperors on a par with deity has been a practice of people in ancient history all the way back as far as we can read them and into the pharaohs. And definitely was the case of Nero. So one thing I appreciate about Guthrie and his new commentary, that he backed off from a dogmatic stand on 96 and then did make the statement that those that had, had postulated Domitian at the, at, instead of Nero, because of emperor worship, he made the observation that this was simply not valid. Uh, that emperor worship was in practice during the time of Nero also. And so it was interesting to me to look at that and to see at least that although he had that position that uh, the dogmatic end of it was out, uh, he was now open, uh, he was even taking issue with some of the arguments that had been given in the past. And here's the interesting thing to me. I know of none of the scholars that are writing commentaries and all now, and I'm talking about those that are historical scholars, who are dragging Revelation down to the centuries. You'll find them in one or two camps, either before the destruction of Jerusalem with the application dealing with Jerusalem, with the beast is wrong, that is persecuting Jerusalem, and, and, the, and the Jerusalem are the Jews persecuting the Christians, and then both Rome and Israel persecuting Christians, or you will find the beast identified as Domitian and the downfall of the Roman Empire. But at least there is that sense of respect for the eminence that's there and something that applied to the lifetime of these individuals. And so what you're going to see is uh, a complete change. And this business, another thing that's interesting to me in studying it from a historical perspective, uh, this business of dragging it down through the centuries really got started big in the Reformation movement. Uh, the reformers, uh, beginning with Martin Luther, came out of Roman Catholicism. Well, then obviously there was a lot of persecution that they suffered from Catholicism. And they were coming out, and the Catholic Church to them was the ugliest institution alive. And there was a lot of conflict in those years between those coming out of Catholicism and Catholicism itself. Well, then it's interesting that the commentators, as they wrote, uh, coming out of that area, invariably began to apply the beast to the Pope in Rome. It never been, it never happened before. And so it's interesting, if, if they was right on that, that John wrote something in the first century that nobody had any idea of its meaning whatsoever until 
restoration movement in the 15th century. Now that has to my mind be very interesting that if, if, well, they're, if they're right in driving that down to the centuries and applying it to the Pope in Rome and the beasts of the Roman Catholic Church, then they've got John writing to persecuted people as a persecuted individual to individuals that are waiting imminent uh, tribulation at that point. But in reality, he's not even talking to them. In reality, he's talking about something uh, 15 centuries down the pipe, and absolutely nobody should know anything of what he's saying. And that would be the case if what they're saying is true there. And I say that because many of the commentaries in Protestantism that have been used over the past several generations come out of the Reformation, Reformation movement. And they simply go back and look at the Pope. And then since that time, we noted that the bad guy has been Hitler, and whoever may be the bad guy at any given point. And this would be true of uh, some of the people like Henry W. Armstrong today, who will we'll drag that down through the centuries, and he'll begin to use Revelation to look at things that are going on right now. But what we've noted in going through Revelation is John was writing to people then, and he was in persecution and tribulation, and had been banished to the Isle of Patmos, and he's writing to people who are being persecuted. And he writes to seven specific cities, seven specific churches. And then all through this book, there is this imminent coming of the Lord. It's something that is coming soon. And when we go back and review the overlays, we'll look how this proceeds all, all the way through there. Now, let's go into the 21st chapter here, 21st and 22nd chapter. And last week we dealt with those passages uh, that emphasize the coming soon in the 22nd chapter. Now notice now in uh, chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. All right, now notice the contrast here. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth have passed away. Okay, remember Peter uh, in his destruction, uh, judgment situation that he spoke of, spoke of a new heaven and a new earth. And we know that Peter talked about, talk about a judgment that was imminent. He said that uh, the end of all things is near at hand. It's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And then he speaks in terms of this new heaven and new earth. And remember, we turned by and looked in the Old Testament at Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. And we learned that this expression, the doing away of the heaven and earth, and then the coming in of a new heaven and earth was used in a figurative way to represent the ushering in of a new order of things. And so Israel had been defeated and beaten and carried into captivity, but they were going to be restored and brought out of captivity, brought back to their city, and they were going to be prospered and blessed again, and God would be with them. And in divinity, the doing away with the old where God had punished them, and the ushering in of the new, where they would live long lives in the city, and where they would keep the Sabbath day, and they keep the Sabbath month, and things of this nature. And it's obvious he's talking about a living in the city right at that time, and, and how it would be, and God blessing them, that this situation is spoken of as in terms of a new heaven and a new earth. And so we have here, something had the judgment is placed, been 
taken, it's taken place. Judgment has come to the house of God. Judaism has been judged. God has vindicated Christianity as the true religion. Uh, that the apostles are right, the rabbis are wrong. And here is the true religion that's ordained of God. And with the doing away of Jerusalem, and keep in mind, up until it's done away, Christianity is looked on in the world as a little wayward sect within Judaism. That's all it's looked on from the world's standpoint. But now it's done away. No more sacrifices. No more animal sacrifices. No more temple. No more physical city. And so it's depicted in the same terms that we find over there under a similar situation in Isaiah in terms of the new heaven and new earth. Well, then he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Well, again, we're not talking about a literal city that's going to literally come out of heaven. John saw this in his vision, though. And we notice this contrasted now. Where is the last time that we have read of the Holy City? In the 11th chapter. And that's where the literal, physical, Holy City is judged. And it's trampled underfoot of the Gentiles for a period of 42 months. And this Holy City of Jerusalem that's judged is referred to as the city that is being spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord is crucified. So, as we culminate the first, the first series of visions ends in the 11th chapter. Beginning with the 12th, we start a new series of visions. And the first culminated in the downfall of that city, Old Jerusalem, the trampling underfoot, the 42 months by the Gentiles. Now we culminate this second series of visions with Old Jerusalem is done away, and John sees New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the holy city. Prepared as a bride. And so God's people now, New Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. So God will live with them, dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. This old order passed away is just parallel to what we just read. The old heavens and earth done away, new heavens and new earth. The old order has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. All right, now notice we've already referred to a first death, and we learned that those people who overcame and experience the first death, the second death would have no power over them. And we notice that overcoming and being part of the first resurrection were used in a parallel sense. Now he refers to those again, that their place, now these that fall into this category, will be in the fire lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So the first death, we all experience. 
Okay? Every last person that lives on this earth experiences the first death. And that was the death. Those people that were told to be faithful unto death, they experienced that. But for those people that are faithful unto death, the second death has no power over them. And they are in a parallel situation with those that have overcome. So on the one hand, you have those that overcome, the second death.
physical things that we value used to depict this abode of God in the same way that separation from God is not a literal fire that's going to literally burn. You don't burn the spirit up, literally. The spirit does not drink water. Just as spirits do not need gold streets. But you and I are in a physical body. And in trying to convey to us how terrible the second death is, just as God uses the good to convey how great eternity is, he uses the worst thing that we can conceive of, the worst thing in our experience, to convey how bad it is to be separated from God. And so John now has the holy city, the old city, has been destroyed, trampled underfoot in his vision. And now he's got the holy city coming down out of heaven. This is the new Jerusalem. God is going to dwell in it. That's the church, the people of God. And we're going to see this new city doesn't have any walls. It doesn't have to worry about the sun and the moon and all. And notice what he says, uh, that I'm the Alpha, the Eagle, verse 6, the beginning, the end, to him who is thirsty, I will give him a drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. This is going on right now. The water of life is in the gospel. God has his abode among men right now in the church, in the body of Christ, right here on this earth. And they are the light of God in the world. And they don't depend on the sun for the light, or on the moon, or the stars. Their light is God, spiritually. And we have the good news of salvation in Christ that we're taking to the whole of streams, as he said in John 7, verse 38 and 39, that when the Spirit was given to the apostles, the streams of living water would flow from them. The truth that led to the remission of sins and salvation would come from them. And this happened beginning with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And so the church, wherever we are, wherever we are at, we represent the streams of living water to all mankind. God has his abode with us. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in their midst, he says. And you and I take a message out here where anybody, I don't care how bad they are, they can obey the gospel, have the remission of their sins, and have eternal life, and become a part of this holy spiritual city, and experience in Jesus, he's the tree of life. The constant cleansing of their sins. On the other hand, there are those, he says in verse 8, the vile, the cowardly, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice these things, people that do not repent of this, third place will be in the fiery lake, a burning sulfur, this is the second death. And so those people that continue to live in an ungodly way and refuse to repent, refuse the living water that's being offered to them, they have nothing to look forward to except the second death. But those who overcome through the blood of the Lamb, they don't have to worry about the second death. You and I will die physically, but if you die in the Lord, you will never be separated from the Lord. So the second death has no fire over us. But those who do not die in the Lord will experience the second death, and it's so bad that it's depicted in this way. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, of the last plagues came and said to me, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's the church, the body of Christ. Paul uses the same illustration. We are the bride of the Lord. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And a great high wall with 
kings of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the foundations of this city, the church, the bride of the Lord, is the twelve apostles. Well, what do we look at as our foundation now? Jesus, the chief cornerstone, one time it's referred to, the apostles used to build it, and, and we today using the teaching of the apostles for this spiritual city, and we also send out this message that, that is depicted here as living water to all mankind. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold measured the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city, the rod, and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. It goes ahead and depicts all of the various things. Now John is telling you exactly what he sees. Now what he sees is one thing. What it stands for is something else, just like earlier. What he saw was a dragon. What he saw was a serpent. What he saw was a heart. But then that dragon stood for something. The beast stood for something. The serpent stood for something. The harlot stood for something. And so here he sees this physical city that's come down out of heaven. That's what he sees in vision. But as we're going to see, it represents the spiritual city, New Jerusalem, the church. And so notice now when he, after he talks about all of these physical things that he represents the city with, notice all those precious stones that he mentions. Now look at them, all the way through the 19th to 20th verse, 21st verse. And then come on down, notice what it says in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon. Obviously, it's not a physical city. The city doesn't have a temple because God is its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will spiritual Israel between the heavenly Jerusalem, all of the same, the bride of Christ, and 
physical temple. And it was limited to one spot on the earth. And it depended on the rain. It depended on the sun and on the moon and all the physical elements. But spiritual Jerusalem was not that way. And it was led by God himself. There was no need for a physical temple. God was its temple. And then this city was to be a light to all the nations. And from this city, living water to flow. Well, exactly this happened. The church literally would conquer the Roman world. Right now, the Lord's church is all over the entire world. The message has been put in every single language on the face of the earth. And over the century, millions upon millions have come into this body of people. But notice he said the unclean were not welcome there. You don't get in unless you repent. And so the message is presented, the message of life, of eternal life. And to those that are willing to repent of their sins, but their trust in the Lamb and submit to Him, they come into the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and they become a part of this people. And then we have the responsibility of carrying this message of life. As far as the rivers of life that constantly go through it, you and I stand constantly cleansed in the blood of Christ. Uh, another way John could have said it, in fact, in 1 John 1, in verses 7 to 10, remember he made it clear that those that walk in the light, that they were constantly cleansed by his blood. And so as you're in the light, as you're in the city, as you have your trust in the Lord, as you walk with that kind of attitude, you are constantly cleansed by the blood of the city, you're, by the uh, blood of the Son, you're kept clean of all of these things, and we constantly have the message of living water that we can take to everyone else so that they can have remission of sins and eternal life. And so in verse 2, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Absolutely the only good in this world is there, you know, many times it's easy to sit back and look at all the wrong things in this world. There's a lot of wrong out there. And the wrong things in our own country try and think of the world without the New Testament and without Jesus and without the church. Can you imagine? Think of our own country. Even with righteous people fighting through such things as the National Federation of Decency and all kinds of things and, and preachers preaching all over the place and the message being presented and, and ungodliness being rebuked, even with all of that, look at what we have. Can you imagine this country? Who is it? Look for those people that are standing up for morality in our own country. And what are you going to be looking at? You're going to be looking at a Christian. I don't know anybody else that stands up for morality. I don't know anybody except Christians that are saying that homosexuality is a perversion of the way that God created man. I don't know anybody except Christians that are telling the world that marriage is under death. Do you mark? I don't know anybody except Christians preaching the sanctity of the home. Are you familiar with Dr. Ruth? Everybody familiar with Dr. Ruth? She is the world. She represents exactly what's being taught in the world. An atheist from the word go. Do your own thing, have all your own fun sexually and every other way. That is the world without Christ. So I'm saying on the one hand, the ugly is there. But all of the good, all of the moral, all of the healing qualities that you see in that world is because of the church. And because of Christianity, and we still, these people that are Adam's kid grow, 
if they change, I don't know about you, I do a lot of reading, and I'm taking a lot of psychology classes. I don't know that I have ever met this individual, or read about this individual, who was an ungodly reprobate doing all of these things, and they spent a few hours paying a psychologist, $50 an hour, and all of a sudden they became very moral and good and were something good for society. It doesn't happen. But in every city in the country, and in every country in the world, and in every generation since the first, there have been drunkards, harlots, prostitutes, thieves, robbers, you name them, who have repented because of the effect of the message of the Lord himself, and who have become Christian, and many of these people became a force in fighting the very things that were before. There is nothing in all of history that has affected the change in man in the way that the gospel has. And so, on the one hand, there is a negative there, but it exists not because of the gospel, it exists despite the gospel, and there would be ten times over more of it if it were not the gospel. And so, now, at this time, another thing to keep in mind as we read this, at this time when John has the vision, and you have Jerusalem on the way out, and fleshly Israel on the way out, think of the world in John's day. There was no country that was not idolatrous. There was no country where anybody would say that as many wives as you wanted was wrong, or as many husbands, or as much sex, or homosexuality. Nobody said that was wrong. The Jews were the best thing they had going, and they might they could, they could have as many wives as they could afford. Nobody said any of that was wrong. Look at the world today. Look at what happened to our doctrine. And as bad as the other is, look at what has happened in comparison to what we actually have in the first century. And so we've seen the effect through the years, exactly as portrayed by John in this setting. Behold, I'm coming, comes on down now, and tells us in verse 6, and we conclude with that, he's coming soon, I'm coming soon. Verse 10, the time is near, don't even seal up these words. Verse 12, I'm coming soon. Those that have the right to the tree of life, verse 14, outside of the dogs and those who practice magic arts and the sexually immoral, in other words, you've got those who take from the tree of life, and then on the outside you've got the other. And then verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. This, this by the way, is a perfect for an invitation song and been used that way. It's just as violent today as it was then. The message goes out freely to anyone, and you can still say, the spirit and the bride say, come, the bride is the church. Let him who hears say, come, and whoever's thirsty, whoever wants eternal life, whoever wants the remission of sins, whoever's hungry and thirsty and after righteousness, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes the words away from this book or prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen, Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Lord Jesus be with God's people.
And so it culminates the writing of this book to God's people. They are being persecuted. They are the underdog. They are going to their death. He wants them to hang in there. And his encouragement is, be thou faithful unto them. Who's going to come out on top? God's going to pass judgment under some godly city. God's going to deal with the temple. God's going to deal with Jerusalem. God's going to deal with the beast. You hang in there, you're going to overcome. And then you, with the apostles as your foundation, the bride of the Lord, you're going to represent the message of life to the world. And so the rivers of life will flow forth from you, and you'll have an effect on the nations. And of course this will happen. Jerusalem will go to its downfall. The beast ceases his persecution. In fact, Vespasian comes in in 69 and is on the throne until 79. And he was extremely moderate towards the Christians. And so the Christians come out of this with a 10-year reprieve. And during that time, they make hay. And Christianity really begins to eat up the Roman Empire. Along the way, there's a few times when the old beast has a presence. A little spark in his eye comes back at him again. He's already talked about that. He comes back in Domitian's time. He comes back with Dalvation. But when all was said and done, the Roman Empire would bite the dust. Christianity would come out of that. It's the world religion that would take the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ to literally every corner of the globe. And here you and I sat in a country they didn't even know of at that time, and where there are several millions of people that would make the profession of belief in Jesus. And we live in a country that has benefited in our Constitution in so many ways because so many people down through the years were influenced by this message. And you and I still are a part of that holy city. We still have a part of the rivers that we want to use. It's not a literal physical river. We have the waters of life in our midst at all times. We partake of the sun. We partake of the constant cleansing of his blood. We have the remission of sins, we have eternal life, and we have that same message. The Spirit and the Bride say, come along with the Spirit who inspired this. We constantly make our plea to those out there to come in and to experience the same remission of sins and eternal life that we have. Anybody want to make any uh, comment or concluding remarks before we close up for tonight? Okay, I was going to, uh, we didn't get through it. Uh, next week, uh, from my standpoint, we'll finish it up, and I'll just simply uh, go back over the overlays and give you an opportunity to make any comments you want, uh, especially, again, to review the material on the date itself, and then we finish up.